Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Well, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a, a time in life when you realize that maybe uh, some of the things that you did as a kid uh, were not very normal, right? Uh, there, there, there's a time where, where you realize that maybe some of the things that your family does, that your parents have done, uh, were not what every family did, right? I, I've shared with you before, my, my family, everyone in past generations of my family has owned a Model A Ford. And so I grew up driving in a, riding in a 1931 Model A Ford in the rumble seat and thinking it was very normal to have an air horn that went auga as we drive down the road, right? And there was a day when I was like 12 when I just thought like, you know what? No one else is riding in the rumble seat of a Model A Ford. They seem to be hanging out in Camrys. Maybe, maybe I could do that. Maybe our family could be normal, right? And so I, I promised myself that day, like, I'm, I'm not going to let my kids do, I'm not, we're not going to do weird stuff. I'm gonna, they're just going to have a normal American life. But no matter what you do, your family has special things, special privileges, things that, that you think are normal and they're not. And so I was thinking about some of those uh, this week, some of you know that I have a, a brother-in-law who's in the music industry, and so sometimes we get to take our kids to concerts and things like that, and they uh, are a little too used to hanging out backstage and eating high-end catering, and so uh, we went to a Hilliard-Bradley football game last year, uh, hanging out watching a friend, and the kids were like, Dad, this is boring. Can we go backstage and get some shrimp? And I was like, no, no, we can't go backstage and get some shrimp. This is a high school football game. There is no backstage, and if there was, it would probably have, like, athletic tape. I don't know what would be there, but there's, there's no shrimp, right? And so they're like, oh, this is the worst, Dad, you know, they're telling me. And, uh, and in that moment, I realized that no matter what I do, there's just things that are unique to each family and things that you haven't been able to avoid. And, and so uh, my wife grew up in a family where boating was just what you do. Like every vacation, every weekend, every summer, they were boating and they were on the lake. I grew up uh, in the exact opposite scenario where I think we owned a canoe and went camping like eight times or something, right? And so I had never been uh, water skiing. I'd never been on a jet ski. I'd never slalomed. I'd never wakeboarded. I'd never done any of this stuff. And, and when I met them, they're like, hey, you want to go out and do this? And I'm like, if you'll teach me, I had no idea, right? And so uh, slowly I started to get acclimated to those things and learn how to do those things. And I like to think that I, I wasn't terrible, but every time I, I go out there, I'm still like, they're all going to laugh at me. They're all going to laugh at me. I'm not good enough. I don't know how to do this. Right. And so they're just a family that loves water sports and, and loves all those things. And so I've, I've tried to make sure that our, our kids would not have my syndrome where they, they haven't done stuff. And so we've had them in the water at a very young age. I never went uh, skiing, uh, snow skiing for the first time until I was like 32. So I, I made my kids go six weeks after I went for the first time because I was like, you will not be sheltered. You will know how to do this, right? And so I'm trying to get them acclimated and, and do these things. And, and so as we've done that, we, uh, we were out this summer for Labor Day. We were hanging out, we were driving a jet ski, and my daughter, Mercy, is five. She's been on a jet ski before, but now she's kind of uh, old enough to realize what she's doing. Before, we just throw her on there and be like, hey, we're going to the other side of the lake. And so this summer, uh, we, we got on there, and she just like burst into tears. And, and she's like, I don't want to do this. It's scary, you know? And I was like, this isn't scary. It's great. And so I started telling her all about it and telling her how nothing makes me happier than a jet ski. And I like to go on these long rides that spend way too much money on gas and tick off the whole family because 
because we have to go fill the thing up again. And I was like, this is awesome, honey. You want to do this? And she's like, I don't want to do it. It's scary. And so it was so bad. She was like inconsolable. Finally, we just, I was like, okay. We sent her back to the shore with the, with the family. And I got on. And a day later, I, uh, I'd been out skiing and I came back and she comes rolling up on the jet ski. Like she's, she's sitting right behind my father-in-law and she's hanging out with grandpa. And she's like, look, dad, I'm on the jet ski. Almost like rubbing it in. I was like, yeah, you are, and you didn't want to ride the jet ski with me yesterday. And she said, yeah, Grandpa helped. He told me that it wasn't scary, and so we're, we're just out riding it. And I was like, oh, did he? Great. Thanks, Grandpa. And he was like, yeah, I just explained to her that she was with me, and she was safe. And I was like, those are all the same things that I said. And I'm her dad, you know, and, uh, and it just didn't seem to, to matter at all at that moment. And, and uh, it, it was weird. She, she had all these fears and she had all these things. She was just like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. And, and I tried to get her to say, hey, what are your fears? What scares you? Let's talk about those. And she was like, no, no, I don't even want to talk about my fears because you're the kind of dad that just puts me on the jet ski and hits the gas and says, get over it. And so apparently... My father-in-law is better at, at working through fears and, and working through things that, that make us nervous and working through all of her, her skepticism. And so this morning, uh, we, uh, we want to continue our series that we have been in. We've been in a series called Let Me Introduce You. We're talking through uh, the, the Christmas story and kind of the four different accounts, four different directions, uh, four different ways that we see the Christmas story happen. And the reason that I'm talking about this, uh, this theme of fear and this theme of skepticism and what we do with our fears, what we do with our skepticism, who we allow to see those and, and what questions we ask is because that's the, the count and the direction that we want to go uh, today. We're going to be uh, in the book of Luke. And uh, the book of Luke is, is one of the gospels. Many of you know it. You, you know that the, the New Testament starts Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're going to be on page 779. And we want to look at some things that are leading up to the Christmas story because it's, it's not wrong to have fears. It's not wrong to have doubts. It's not wrong to have questions. Sometimes in church, we think that when everyone walks in, we should say, you go through the week and you're perfect. You never are a skeptic. You never have fear. You never have doubt. You never, you never doubt anything. You think everything's perfect. But the reality is we're going to have those as we interact with God. In any relationship, you have fears and doubts and, and skepticism. And it's, the question is, what are you going to do with your fear? Who are you going to take those fears to? Who are you going to take those questions to? And so we want to look at uh, this, this account that Luke gives us and see what people did uh, with their skepticism what they did with their doubts, what they did with their fear. And so I want to read Luke chapter one, verse one, page 779. We're actually only going to, to park in that chapter today, not even make it to the official Christmas story, but many of these events that lead up to it as we're looking at these different accounts and these different introductions to who Jesus is and why he came. Because these, uh, these four accounts give us kind of a comprehensive and, and overwhelming picture and story of who Jesus is and why he was sent as a baby thousands of years ago. So page 779, chapter one, verse one. Let me read this to us as we study and as we learn together. It says this in verse one. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple 
for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. Verse 26 says this. In the sixth month of of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Verse 39, a few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought 
down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to her ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then went back to her own home. Verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. When the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony. They wanted to name him Zachariah after his father. But Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. What, they exclaimed, there is no one in all of your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. He motioned for a writing tablet, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. All fell upon the whole neighborhood, and the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, what will this child turn out to be for the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant. The covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins because of God's tender mercy. The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. Last verse there, John grew up and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. And most of us would know uh, that that man, that cousin, that person who was going to foreshadow the arrival and the birth of Jesus as John the Baptist. And so I love this account. I love these events. Most of us uh, at Christmas, we hang out with grandma and grandpa. We immediately pass around the family Bible. We jump right to chapter two and we get into the Christmas story and we look at how great that is. It's probably the famous best account. We miss all of these events and that's not bad, but I want us to just focus on these today because I think there's so much that we can learn from this account of Luke. And who is, who is this guy, Luke? Well, Luke is the author of, of this book. Obviously, he's also the author of the book of Acts. And in Colossians, we learn that, that he was a, a doctor. He's called the beloved physician. And so I don't want to put any pressure on the doctors in the room, medical doctors or other doctors, but you already know that there's a little pressure on you. You're supposed to be the most educated and the smartest people in our society. And so that was the case back then. A doctor was someone who was well-respected, who was educated through the Roman system, someone who had a better vocabulary and someone who gave very detailed explanations, someone who could do wonderful research. And so something that I love about this account is that it's, it's very accurate. It's been, it's been corroborated by other historians. There's a, another uh, historical book that kind of runs parallel to the Bible, uh, and it's, 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 called, uh, it's written by a man named Josephus, and, and all of these things match up, all of these things that Luke said, because he did his homework, he studied all of these uh, different events, and, and Luke is not only a doctor, but he's a historian. 
Now, why did he write this gospel? Well, he wrote this account to compile the story of Jesus and kind of give us a different account, a a different way of of thinking and a different way to, to talk about this story. It's not that his story is different from the other gospels, but just a slightly different perspective that could appeal to a a different audience. And he wrote this to a man named Theophilus, a name that, that means God lover. And there's a lot, a lot of different theories out there of who this guy was, but he's writing to, to this guy named Theophilus because one thing is, is certain. Luke is a man who does his research. Luke is a man who's very intelligent. And Luke wanted him to know these details in this way. He wanted, he wanted to know that it wasn't a coincidence that these events happened. And Luke wanted him to have the facts so that he could say, this is who Jesus is. This is how God ordained this story and wrote this through the history of time. And I want you to have the facts about Jesus so you can decide what you want to do with this man and with the, the savior of the world. He even touches on many of these times in the life of people who were visited by God that they doubted what God was going to do. There's, there's times that he's highlighting in the life of Zechariah and in the times of, of Mary that they had skepticism, that they said, Lord, I doubt that you're going to do this. I don't know if you're going to do this. And so I want you to know right off the bat, one of the greatest things, our big idea for this morning, something that we can take from the book of Luke is, is simply this, that Jesus came to us knowing that we are skeptics. Jesus came to us and Jesus came for us knowing that we are skeptics. Yes, it would be great to say that we all read chapter two of Luke and we read the Christmas story and we say, that's perfect. I trust all of it. I believe all of it. Jesus, here's my life. And yet there are moments that we don't act and we don't operate like we believe what we're reading and what we're seeing. In fact, you've heard us highlight this term before that sometimes we show fear and we show doubt. And we're skeptical. And in those moments, we're basically what we call temporary atheists. Maybe we would say, oh, I still believe in God. But in moments, in private moments and sometimes public moments, we're not acting like we believe and trust what God has called us to do and what he's telling us and what he's doing in our lives. Jesus came to us knowing that we are skeptics. And there's multiple accounts in here that we just read that we highlighted of skepticism. And so we have to ask the question, is it good or is it, is it bad to be a skeptic? Because sometimes we think that, like we said, we're supposed to just believe everything. We're supposed to just read that, digest it and say, yep, God is good. Yep, I trust him. If he said he did it, he did it. It's in the Bible. I believe it. No questions. Now let me go out and live a perfect Christian life. But that's probably not reality for most of us. In some way or another, throughout our life, throughout seasons, throughout our work week, there are ways that we're not, we're not trusting God and there are ways that we're doubting God. And I think what we see in this account, seeing that Zechariah had, had trouble trusting in moments and seeing that Mary even said, really, this is what you want to do, God? This is what's going to happen we can see that, that God is not afraid or threatened by our skepticism, but instead he's saying, bring your, bring your doubts, bring your fears, bring your worries to me, and I'll put them to rest. Skepticism is, is interesting because in some ways skepticism is healthy. Many of you know someone who just blindly believes something and, and won't embrace the truth, and so sometimes if we're not doubting something, it almost makes us sound deceived, right? We all, we all know that there are two kinds of Browns fans in this world. There's that hopeful Cleveland Browns fan who just won't even have a conversation that they're the worst professional sports franchise of all time, right? And then there's the Debbie Downer Browns fan like me who hasn't even watched a game in a couple years because 
because I'm just ready to admit that everything's come undone and I don't even know what it looks like to be a Cleveland Browns fan anymore, right? So there's, there's, there's multiple kinds of skepticism. Sometimes we're saying, oh, there's nothing wrong. The sky's not falling. It's perfect. And sometimes we're saying everything's wrong. But the reality is sometimes with some fear, with some doubt, with some skepticism, it can make us ask questions and find answers. And we can actually have a healthy skepticism where we can say, you know what? I, I, I believe this and here's why I believe this. And so for me, I've had a skepticism of being a Browns fan where I finally just arrived that I was born in Northeast Ohio. I'm not proud to be a Browns fan. It's miserable, but it's who I am. It's the plot I've been given in life. And it's just what I, it's what I need to do, right? It's what I, what I have to do. And so I have what I like to think of a, a healthy skepticism. But sometimes there are people who, uh, who have skepticism, who have doubt, who have worry, and they talk themselves past a logical point, past a, a reasonable point. They actually talk themselves into unbelief. There are people who don't just say, all right, these doubts that I'm having, I'm going to lean into them. I'm going to find out what they mean. I'm going to look for answers. They actually just take those fears and doubts as truth and they talk themselves into not believing. They talk themselves into a place of being fearful and being skeptical into an unhealthy place. And so there are basically two reasons that, that we have doubts. Sometimes we're being, we're being needy. Right? I mean, we, we don't want to admit it. We don't want to admit that we're, we're needy people. But sometimes we're, we're unaware that we're loved. Or we're unaware that, that God is working in history. We're unaware that he has a plan. Or we're not really feeling that he has a plan. And so we go looking for our own way to justify where we are. Sometimes we're, we're looking to fulfill a need. Sometimes we're being protective of ourselves. Some of us have been wounded. Some of us have been hurt. Some of us feel like that's because of a mistake that God made or a situation that God put us in. And so we're going to protect ourselves from being a part of his plan. Or we're going to protect ourselves from having to be in relationship with him. We're going to hold him at arm's distance because we've been wounded and we don't want to be a part of that anymore. And maybe, maybe our, our doubt, maybe our fear, maybe our worry is because we're just in a, in a spot where we're rebelling from God. Maybe it's because we've been wounded or maybe we would even claim that it's, it's because of where we are intellectually. We just don't want to trust God. We can't see that this is true. We can't see that this actually happened. It doesn't make sense. And so for some reason or another, we're holding God at an arm's distance. Sometimes it's because we're protecting ourselves. Sometimes it's because we're needy. But in this account that Luke gives us, we see what it looks like to have a, a healthy sense of skepticism. And so he writes down this orderly account so that we can have certainty that these events happened, that they occurred in history. And Luke doesn't want us to be duped by, by our fears and to be talked into skepticism, but he also doesn't want us to be prideful and not willing to ask questions, not willing to look for answers because we know that we're right. And so God, through Luke and through this book, calls us to be thinkers and have the facts about the complete acceptance that Jesus has demonstrated for you and I. And Luke is an example of letting our skepticism strengthen our faith and flex our faith and develop our faith and bring about faith. Luke lists all of these times in the account of Jesus that prophecies from the Old Testament are fulfilled with the arrival of Jesus. And that's not a coincidence. There are hundreds of prophecies that were made thousands of years before in the Old Testament 
that are linked up and that, that, that are, are, are basically uh, God saying, see, see what I did there? I told you I was going to do this. I wrote history. I timed history. I controlled history. And what I said I was going to do thousands of years later happened when these prophecies were, were fulfilled with Jesus. And so there was a, a prophecy in Genesis 49 where we were told that Jesus would be born from the line of Judah. And we see that happen in the book of Luke because Jesus came out of that exact line and that exact family that we were told that he would come out of. There was a, a passage in the book of Isaiah that we were told that Jesus will be born of a virgin, which those of you that know something about biology know that, all right, that's not how that works, right? And so that was a pretty big one. And yet we see that happening where it was fulfilled in Luke chapter one, as we read, we we're told that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem in the book of Micah. And later on in Luke chapter two, that's fulfilled. And we're told that Jesus will enter the temple before it was destroyed in 70 AD, before the nation of Israel was dispersed and it was torn down and things went bad. We see that written in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, and that's fulfilled in Luke chapter two. And so we can glean that these historical events, these things that Luke is capturing are not a coincidence. He's saying God was in control. God did this. God had a plan. God was weaving this story. God was bringing about this event. God brought Jesus to redeem the world. And you can trust these events. You can know these events. You can look into these events. And as you have fear and as you have doubt, and as you find yourself being a skeptic, go ahead and bring that skepticism to God. Bring your fears to God. Bring your doubts to God. And look for answers. And see if trust isn't born out of that. And so we can glean a couple of things from the book of Luke. We can, we can be encouraged to be critical thinkers because it's, it's not bad to say, you know what, I don't understand how God did this. I don't understand why God did this. I'm gonna go look for answers. Listen, God, God is not some, some little guy who's trying to bully people and saying, you better trust me, you better believe me. He's not the Wizard of Oz hiding behind a curtain saying, whoa, look at me, I'm great. He's not afraid of our doubt and our fear and our skepticism. So you can bring your fears and you can bring your doubts and you can look into the story that he's woven through history. And if you keep reading, if you keep studying, I think this, this account of the book of Luke shows that you'll find facts it's always said, you've got questions, we've got answers, right? And so I think that that's what God is saying to us. He's saying, bring me your fears, bring me your questions, bring me your doubts. Luke is written, and it's, it's orderly, it's organized, so that we can have certainty who Jesus is, and that he did what it says that he did. And so I want to ask you today, are you willing to be honest about your skepticism? Are you willing to admit that you have questions? Maybe the questions are about God's plan that he's woven through time and woven through history. Maybe they're questions about what he's doing in your life right now. Do you have questions about what God is doing in your life? And are you willing to be honest with your skepticism, your doubts, your questions, and to bring those things to God? We see that, that Zechariah was doubting God. He was saying, God, you can't do that. God, you shouldn't do that. God, you won't do that. That's not possible. And his faith was tested. The guy didn't have a, a voice for a while. But slowly as he looked into that, as he trusted, as he investigated, God said, I know you think I can't do that. I shouldn't do that. I won't do that. But I'm in control. And this is how I'm writing your story. And this is what I want to do. And you can trust me. And you can know that I will do what I say I'm going to do. And you can know that I love you. We see in the, the story of, of Mary, 
But she had doubt. She had questions. I'm going to be pregnant. People are going to talk. People are going to wonder. This is not going to look great. And, And yet those fears were put to rest. Mary, I'm going to do exactly what I said I'm going to do. I'm going to be exactly who I said I'm going to be. Your son is going to be the savior of the world. And you can trust me. And you can know that I'm here for you. You can know my plan. I think it's interesting that at times we all have doubts in our faith. Some of us think that we're not allowed to have doubts. We're not allowed to ask questions. Some of us let those doubts and those questions and those fears dominate our faith. I think there's a happy middle ground where at some point as we explore our faith, we shouldn't be frozen by our doubts and we shouldn't be driven by our doubts, but we have to uh, just say, all right, where is this question coming from? What is the root of the question that I'm asking and how can I go to God? How can I take this to God? How can I search and find answers and look for answers? I recently had a, a chance to, uh, to read a book with a friend of mine and we were just exploring this topic of faith. Uh, this, this wasn't to, uh, to say, hey, let's study the Bible and grow. This was to say, all right, does God exist? Is God who he says he is? Did he create things like he said he did? Did he really send his son Jesus? And we got to read through these events in history and study these concepts. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do children die? Why would God allow this to happen? Why would he, why would he arrange history the way he did? And can he really exist? And at the end of this book, it, it had a concept that I, I love. And so I want to just pass it on to you today. It said this. It said that sitting and thinking doesn't lead to certainty. And reading also doesn't lead to certainty. Those things can set up our progression and our move to certainty. But it said, ultimately, we must embark on our journey of faith by doing what faith would do. Jesus said that we are his disciples if we do what he says. A disciple follows their master. And so we're one of his disciples, one of his followers, if we're doing what he asks us to do. Being a disciple means that you're a follower learner. And when you're a follower learner, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so knowing the truth doesn't mean filling your head with knowledge. Of course, you can gather knowledge, you can ask questions, you can look into things, you can investigate them, but to experience truth and to be set free, you must be a follower learner. To experience truth and to be set free, you must be a follower learner. In other words, we have to do what Jesus says and we'll experience the validity of a life with him. It's kind of like riding a a bicycle, I guess you could say. You can't watch a YouTube video on riding a bike and just go outside and jump on that bike. And and yet there's there's a moment where you could say, all right, I've studied how to ride a bike. I trust that you can ride a bike. I know how other people ride bikes and yet I haven't done that for myself. And so eventually you have to get out there and get on the bike and get the feel of it and experience the validity of what you know can happen. And so as you and I follow Jesus, as we explore faith, as we look into faith, you're going to have doubts. They may be simple doubts. It might be that you don't even believe that God is who he said he is. You don't believe that God exists. You don't believe that the creation account in scripture could actually happen. You think that when the the scriptures tell us that Jesus came and defeated sin and death and rose from the dead, that that's an allegory and it must be explaining something else. And it's really just this word picture that's meant to make us feel happy and good inside. And you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did what he said he did. And so I would ask you to bring your doubts and to bring your fears to him. Be a follower, be a learner, and experience the freedom and validity that comes with faith from knowing Jesus.
As you follow and explore, you'll have doubts. Jesus came to us knowing that we are skeptics, but we have to lean into our doubts for answers and lean into the actions of faith. And in the actions of faith, you will experience the validity of faith. Because Jesus came to this broken world and to our broken lives knowing that we're skeptics and offering us faith, offering us hope. And faith is a muscle that eventually we have to try. Eventually we have to work out. And so the reason that we study this Christmas story is not just for fun, but because Jesus came to this world knowing that we we're broken, knowing that we were flawed and saying, I'm here so that you can have hope, so that you can know love. I'm here so that you can know me and I can come into your world and fix your broken heart and fix your broken world. But you have to trust me. There's no way to understand faith without first experiencing faith, first exercising faith and saying, Jesus, I'm falling into your arms. You're my last resort. You're my only hope. You're all I have. I, I want to trust you. And if you're at a place that you'd love to do that today for the first time, we have a, a next steps card there on the table. We would love to talk to you more about what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus. Having a relationship with Jesus doesn't mean that your life 10 minutes later will be perfect. It just simply means that you're saying, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I'm falling into your arms. Jesus, I'm giving you my everything because I'm at the end of myself and the end of everything else. And the, the events that I've seen, the information that I've gathered, it lines up. And so I wanna, I wanna flex the muscle of my faith. I wanna trust you. I wanna build a relationship with you. I wanna have a relationship with you. I wanna know you. That's what Luke was pointing us to. The validity of faith through the certainty of facts. Jesus came to this world because we have fears and doubts and skepticism because he was the answer and he is the answer. Will you pray with me? God, this morning, we give you our fears and we give you our doubts and we give you our skepticism. Some of those things are simple. Some of those things are rooted in hurt and pain and betrayal. Some of those things are rooted in many events that have taken place in our lives. And some of those things are keeping us from knowing you, Lord. Others in this room have a relationship with you, have faith in you. And yet there are things that are attacking them and threatening their faith. God, I pray, what, pray whatever, what, what fears and doubts and skepticism we have, Lord, that we will bring those things to you and we'll see our questions answered. God, I pray that we will lean into our questions and see faith and experience the validity of faith and let the validity of faith and trusting you and hoping in you prove the certainty of everything we know and everything we've been told and everything we've seen. God, you love us, you created us for a purpose and even when we mess up and separate ourselves from you you sent Jesus to this earth to give his life so that we could know you and trust you and have a relationship with you and so God I pray that this morning that people will do just that that maybe for the first time they'll say Lord I, I trust you I'm falling into your arms I don't know what this is going to look like God but you're all I have I pray that those that are feeling attacked or having questions or have drifted in their faith will, will lean into those questions and pursue them and, and at the end will find you, find your love again. And so God, I just pray for us this morning, pray that we will bring our skepticism and our fear and our doubts and our beliefs to you. And that the, the account of the ways that you've orchestrated time will be an encouragement to how you've, you've woven this story of love and the story of redemption because you love us and want to redeem us. So God, I just, 
ask that we'll be responsive today, Lord. If there's someone in the room who wants to trust you for the first time, pray they'll have the courage to, to mark that on that form and drop it in the baskets as they go around. God, we pray that we'll be people who, who want relationship with you because we were made for relationship with you. So we give you our worship today. We give you our response. We give you the rest of today. And I just ask that you'll use that and let it glorify you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.